Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth and I'll be your host. Today I'd like to welcome Catherine Porter, independent energy consultant and founder of WattLogic Consultancy. Um, that's it for my intro. Catherine, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how you came to be an independent energy consultant? Sure. Um, yeah, so I started my career in finance, um, initially in uh, capital markets and advisory in the TMT sector. I was a casualty of the dot-com bust um, back in the early 2000s. Um, and then I spent a brief amount of time in fixed income before moving into the commodities markets and eventually from there specialising in energy. And I bounced between the banks and uh, trading floors of utilities for a few years. And then I took a career break for health reasons. And during that time, I started writing a blog about energy, um, partly so people just didn't forget who I was while I was having this break. And um, people were reading my blog and I started getting asked to do projects for people and it just went from there. Wow, that, that's awesome to hear that you were able to sort of parlay that into being able to work for yourself instead of, I, I imagine, the madness of going on trading floors and, and working with the banks and whatnot. I, mean, I have a social media-led energy consulting business, which is a very unexpected thing, really. I didn't <laughs> think I'd ever be saying those words. <laughs> um, I, I want to direct my listeners to your website, watt-logic.com. I'll put, put it in the description. Um, but Catherine has just an amazing ability to summarize very complex issues in a way that, that people can understand. And I just love your, your website and I read your blog and um, it's just such a pleasure to be speaking to you today. Well, thank you. Um, now, most Canadians uh, deal with a provincial crown corporation that provides their electricity and heating and energy. So for our listeners in North America, I'm wondering if you could just, <laughs> in as best as you can, explain how the UK's energy utility market works. Sure. Yeah. So when we privatized uh, the previously nationalized energy industry in the 90s, uh, we started a process also of unbundling. Um, and so the first step was to separate out generation into separate companies and network operators. And then in around 2000, um, you had the final separation of what we call suppliers, which are essentially retailers, um, and they were separated from uh, network companies. So actually, the people that supply gas and electricity into our homes, they don't own any infrastructure. They can own generation. It is allowed for them to own generation. But the network companies have to be completely separate and they're regulated monopolies. So the, um, these suppliers, uh, they're pretty much virtual businesses, really. Um, they don't get too much involved in physical stuff. That's all sort of handled um, separately. But they're the people that, uh, that customers deal with. Um, so you have people like British Gas as the market leader. That was the former incumbent. And then lots of other companies have entered the market since then. Um, and they sell gas and electricity to households and to businesses. Okay, so uh, how do they generate their prices then? If the retailers don't actually control the supply per se, how, how do they come up with the prices? Well, it's pretty much the same as it would be in any other industry. Um, they, they buy gas and electricity in the wholesale markets 
and the price of that is then determined by the balance between supply and demand uh, in the same way that a supermarket uh, has to base its prices on uh, you know the prices that farmers and other producers uh, give to them and obviously there's a negotiation it, it's similar in the energy market if you you can engage with a power station directly and enter into an uptake agreement um or, or you can just buy in in the sort of traded wholesale markets okay um so there's been a lot of what people have heard in canada is that the that the prices are out of control in the UK, that the government has implemented this price cap and it will only shield consumers maybe until April. And then it's unclear what's going to happen. Um, do you think this is helpful for, for the UK to be doing this? Is there an alternative that, that they could be doing? Um, I don't think there is much of an alternative. I mean, in common with most places, um, we have uh, electricity prices that are based on the marginal cost of generation. And for us, that's gas. Um, and that's not unusual. In fact, there are many countries that have gas as the marginal source of generation. And so because gas prices have risen so much in the past year, that's fed through into electricity prices. And it's driving inflation quite strongly. And also at the same time, we're having um, strong food inflation because of the situation in the Ukraine. So these things are all uh, contributing to what we're terming here as cost of living crisis. Um, and energy costs have gone up uh, by many times, you know, several times over. And so it was really felt that um, energy was going to be unaffordable for consumers. Uh, and in a normal year, we have between six and eight thousand people dying as a result of fuel poverty in, in the winter, um, which is pretty atrocious, really, for a developed country. Uh, and, you know, experts were suggesting that as many as 40 percent of people would be in fuel poverty had the government not acted um, to cap prices. So we've had uh, something called a price cap uh, for a few years now. That was something separate in addition to this uh, price cap that was really a pass through of costs and um, calculated by the regulator, the government has put in place um, what is called a price guarantee, which is holding prices down below cost. And that's being funded through taxation. Now, the um, that's being held at two and a half thousand pounds on as an annual average until April. And then from April for the following year, it's going to rise up to three and a half thousand pounds so domestic customers will still receive a discount on their energy costs, but it'll be a smaller discount uh, because if they'd held it at the two and a half thousand pounds, that was going to be a very, very expensive measure for the state to fund. So what happens, let's say in in April, there's a change in world gas markets and the price decreases. Um, would this would things that be taken to, into account? It would, yes. So the, the government is guaranteeing, guaranteeing that you won't pay more than the level it's set. But if market prices fall below that, then uh, consumers will get the benefit of that reduction. Okay. So um, in terms of the UK's energy security strategy, I, I notice it hasn't been updated since Boris Johnson released his strategy. I think it was back in April. And Rishi Sunak the new prime minister hasn't hasn't updated that. Do you think that it's going to be reconsidered? I mean, the Boris Johnson's energy security strategy seemed to be focused on we need to reduce consumption and 
uh, use energy efficiency things and so on and and doubling down on renewables. Do you think that's uh, the solution here or what would you recommend? Well, I think one thing I would um, say about the Boris Johnson's um, strategy was it was full of things that are actually limits and not targets. So all of the numbers were expressed as we're going to have up to so many gigawatts of wind and up to so many gigawatts of nuclear. That's not a target. A target would be at least right. so many gigawatts. So what they've actually done is they've expressed this as limits, which I find kind of interesting, really. And I'm not really sure why they, they've uh, framed it in that way. Um, whether it's just unintentional or, or whether they really meant that as a limit. Um, so I, I disagree with that strategy. I have quite a big concern about the way that we've been pushing wind. And it's not just in Britain that we're seeing this. Um, we've rushed to develop quite a significant amount of wind now. And what we haven't done is really think particularly deeply about what happens when it isn't windy. In the past week, we've had that type of weather here in Britain, and we've had very high prices. We've had um, warnings that we might run out of electricity. Um, the uh, national grid um, alerted its coal reserve that it might be needed this week. Um, there was a possibility last week that it was going to activate its new demand flexibility service. And this is not really quite early in the winter for us. So these are all signs that um, when it's not windy, we're starting to encounter problems. And the technologies to back that up don't really exist. You know, so people were thinking about batteries. Well, most batteries, they, they discharge on average between one and four hours. The average is three hours. If you've got two weeks of low wind conditions, then that's clearly not going to be enough. <laughs> um, when we entered the energy transition, I think there was an assumption that you'd be able to import your way out of trouble. Uh, but we've actually discovered in the last couple of years that low wind conditions can actually persist across fairly wide areas. In July and August this year, we had a high pressure weather system sitting pretty much across northern Europe and all the countries were experiencing the same thing. We had very hot, very still weather or droughts all over the place. Those weather conditions in the winter when demand is higher um, will be re are really quite worrying. Um, and so we're now realizing that actually we can't necessarily import our way out of trouble either. So if I were if I were in charge of the um, the energy security strategy, I might be inclined to pause the rollout of new wind to give uh, storage and bulk storage technologies in particular a chance to catch up. I would focus more on uh, reducing heat losses in homes. We have notoriously leaky homes here in Britain that cost consumers money. Um, and it's also not very environmentally sustainable. Uh, and given we don't have the money to do everything at once, um, I would prefer to stop subsidising more wind for the time being and really focusing on improving our housing stock. And the other thing I would do would be accelerate the, uh, the construction of new nuclear power stations. Um, and I would not choose the um, European pressurised water reactor that EDF is trying to build. It's a minimum of 10 years and they haven't actually managed to build one in Europe yet. <laughs> I would um, I would go for advanced boiling water reactors, which were built in Japan in five years before Fukushima. So I would say, right, that one there that got built in five years, I just want those and, and do that. You know, that's a really good point, because if, for example, in Canada, they're talking about uh, new research and development for SMR, small modular reactors, and they're doing it, they're like reinventing the wheel. There's already different technologies out there, whether, you know, Japan has some. 
they they started, I think it was last July, um, this helium cooled small modular reactor where they did the, the they were running it, then they had a, a shutdown and then they restarted it and everything's been fine. China also, I think it was in September, they um, opened their first small modular reactor that's helium cooled as well. So there's alternatives out there. And I agree that the, um, the advanced reactor from Japan that you mentioned, you know, why not get that off the shelf, right? I mean, if, if, it's done, if they've done it and it's proven technology, then, then why reinvent the wheel for these other things just to say you've done it in-house? Yes, exactly. And the British government has indicated that it would like to um, start removing some of the bottlenecks from the process. And one way of doing that is to, um, to leverage the work of other, say, trusted regulators around the world. Um, so that would include Japan. It probably wouldn't include China. Um, and, and unfortunately, if we're looking back over the last couple of decades, the countries that have really made progress with nuclear have been China and Russia. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in Britain in particular, there's a strong move to actually exclude Chinese companies from nuclear projects. Um, so I can't see any change in, in that thinking in, in the near term. So we have our own small modular reactor technology with Rolls-Royce, which is expected to enter the market later this decade. Um, and I, I would be surprised if we were would switch course on that. Um, mm. But I do think that, uh, so take these advanced boiling water reactors that were built in Japan in five years, that would be a great place to start now. Um, carry on with the small modular reactor development and then set up some work around thorium. Now the Chinese have just opened a new thorium reactor there are various places in the world and Norway has um, a trial project um, running. It, it's actually a much um, better nuclear technology than uranium. It's, it's safer. You can't really get a meltdown with thorium in the way that you can with uranium. Um, so I'd really like to see that as a sort of medium term goal um, to give a sort of a better technology diversity. For sure. And especially if it can be done on a small enough scale to have smaller nodes situated around instead of having these large mega kind of um, facilities. So I, I wanted to ask you, what's your, your position on, on gas utilities? Because the North Sea does still have potential to increase production of natural gas, um, but there seems to be a sort of stalling on, on developing that. Do you see that there's a future to develop that to increase um, Britain's natural domestic natural gas supply? Yes, well, the government is actually committed to doing that. And uh, there's a new licensing round underway at the moment, which closes in January, which is gonna um, issue around 100 new licenses for, um, for acreages in the North Sea. Uh, this um, And this is all very positive. Unfortunately, at the same time, the government has put in place a pretty punitive windfall tax um, on domestic oil and gas production. Um, <laughs> that's disincentivizing producers, particularly the majors, from wanting to expand their activities in the North Sea, which is actually now becoming a technically challenging um, geography. You know, so if you're a, a major with worldwide operations, you're going to choose places where it's easier um, to get the oil and gas out than the North Sea. We do actually have a pretty good um, domestic sort of small mid-scale um, sector operating in the North Sea. Unfortunately, they're still also being hammered by these taxes. And, you know, we just keep hoping that the government, um, you know, takes a little step back from that because it's not incentivizing 
uh, it was not aligned with the objectives that the government has in terms of increasing domestic production. And I think it's important for people to, to keep in mind two things. One is that nobody believes that we're going to stop using oil and gas any time in the coming decades. There are no projections for 2050 where we're not using oil and gas anymore, even in the energy sector. Never mind all the other sectors where oil and gas are used as feedstocks. You know, I can't see any sort of credible alternative to plastic coming along in the next couple of decades and solvents and all of these things. So we're still going to need oil and gas, even where we're moving towards net zero. And if we produce that oil and gas domestically, then you control the emissions from that process and you avoid the emissions from transportation. So it has to be a more desirable thing than importing it from elsewhere. For sure, especially elsewhere where they may not have the same type of environmental um, regulations and stringency that the UK has. Exactly, yes. Uh, we face something similar in Canada where we have a, an extremely rigorous uh, regulatory structure for um, environmental stewardship and whatnot. And that isn't what the reputation that Canada seems to have abroad. It's like some people say it's like this Wild West, but it's definitely not the case. Which brings me to the environmental groups, because um, it's my understanding that Greenpeace and a few others are preparing litigation for any of these licenses um, that the government approves by January, that they, they're prepared to litigate it. There was um, the Shell case. I think the um, Greenpeace launched their court challenge in September because the government had originally denied Shell this, this permit and then reversed it. And then Greenpeace is now taking them to court. So what's your position or understanding if that litigation goes forward then does that will that stall the development of of the North Sea licenses? Well, I mean, potentially it could, and I think it's pretty short sighted of people like Shell to uh, like Greenpeace, sorry, to be doing that because it, it doesn't stop us from using oil and gas. And I think a big thing that environmentalists fail to consider is that all you do if you restrict supply is push up prices. And that harms consumers and it harms people that live in fuel poverty. It doesn't, it, we're not reducing the amount of hydrocarbons that are being used. The only way to reduce the amount of hydrocarbons being used is to provide consumers with alternatives. And it's not the fault of the oil and gas companies that people use oil and gas. They're just meeting a need. You now, Shell isn't producing gas because it feels like it, it's producing gas because people want to buy it. Um, and so, I think that the, the focus that, that groups like um, Greenpeace have is wrong. They should be really putting their energies into finding alternatives to hydrocarbons rather than uh, penalising uh, companies that are, are trying to meet a need that exists. Unfortunately, I think the environmental groups see that as a benefit, that you make the case that, that they're producing this because people want to buy it. But the, the environmental argument is, well, if we can make it more expensive, then people won't buy it. And then that money can be diverted into finding these alternatives. But that that shift isn't always so clear. You know, consumers will, it, there's no alternative yet for them to get around. They still need to use a, a vehicle. And with the, the, the train strikes right now in the UK, it makes owning a car something that you kind of need to have. It It's not something that's nice to have. You need it. Well, um, yes. And, and we're having... Um, 
you know, concerns over energy security because we've um, rolled out wind and closed our coal power stations. So people are actually um, less keen on electric cars now. And you've seen Switzerland is actually restricting domestic electric car charging this winter. Um, so that's making people think twice about moving to electric cars. And, you know, as I said earlier, we have six to eight thousand people each winter dying as a result of fuel poverty. If you make energy more expensive, you make more people will die from fuel poverty. And I really fail to see why it's better to have people die from fuel poverty than it is to have people die from climate change. I agree. <laughs> um, so this brings me to an, an, an interesting thing, because you talk about how the, the energy system in the UK was nationalized and then it went through this process of privatization and everybody kind of likes privatization when um, prices are cheap. And then it's like, oh, well, that's a success. But then the minute prices start to, to rise or increase or there's a little bit of instability in the system, then people get upset and companies are blamed. And then there's a sort of move to want to nationalize again because the people are thinking sometimes that if government can get involved they can somehow solve this problem and i'm wondering if there's in the uk uh, a desire in certain circles to renationalize the um, energy utilities and energy market in the uk there is um I mean, obviously, you always have the people on the hard left that just want to renationalize anything regardless. Um, but as prices have risen, these these calls have sort of crept up again. Um, and I think it's it's interesting because people seem to view energy as a sort of special case in some ways. Um, our food prices have all gone up as well, but nobody's talking about nationalizing the food industry. Um, so and, and people seem to be very allergic to energy companies earning profits. It's actually um, surprising in this country because of the way that the retail market is regulated. Uh, supply to the domestic market is loss making. It's been loss making for electricity for, for many years now. And it's now been loss making on gas for the past couple of years as well. Um, but because other parts of the energy industry, the network companies have done very well in the last few years. Generators have done OK. And now oil and gas companies are doing really well. Um, there's this perception that uh, energy companies are extremely profitable, but we had prices in the um, domestic market went bankrupt last year, which isn't really a sign of excess profits. So I think we have a very strange relationship with energy companies, um, and until we accept that it's okay for energy companies to earn profits, we're not going to see the types of innovations that we need in the market that will support net zero, things like energy as a service. Um, and the high quality new entrants that have really been missing from the British market. And none of that can be delivered through nationalization. Um, nationalized industries are not good at innovation. Um, they're not good at cost control. And, you know, it, it's, I think it's one of those grass is greener situations. For sure. And, and when things get expensive, then people are looking for someone to blame. And the oil companies, the energy companies have always been a very convenient target, I think, for for directing that blame. Yeah, um, and I, I find it kind of interesting because we're having uh, energy costs going up, we're also having food costs go up. And 
nobody has even made the slightest suggestion that any part of the food industry should be nationalized. Um, and so you've got to wonder why we have this double standard. You know, what is it about energy companies in particular that, that causes us all these concerns uh, where we, we're not having concerns about food, which is also, a, you know, a critical industry? For sure. And, and I don't hear much discussion about the increased costs uh, from the high energy prices in food production. Um, it, it seems to be a sort of forgotten aspect of inflation that if you need energy to move things around, you need energy to process things and so on. And if those prices go up, then the price of everything goes up. And instead, it's, you know, I know that Ukraine is one part of it. But, you know, that's grain prices and whatnot, not necessarily the fruits and vegetables and in the, if you see what's going on in Holland, that there's a lot of greenhouses that produce a lot of fruits and vegetables for the European market can't afford to heat their greenhouses. And so therefore their production goes down or they close, which then has a knock on effect across the entire European, including the UK market. So, you know, the energy is this important feedstock that's leading, contributing to some extent to the, the food price increases. And yet no one's really talking about that. And you're right. They, it's not like they talk about nationalizing farming because I think everyone kind of remembers what happened when the Soviet Union nationalized the farms and millions of people starved. Well, we had um, we had a pretty poor track record of the nationalized energy industry here. Um, another industry actually in Britain, which gets this type of attention is the, the railways. Mm -hmm. um, but the railways used to be under a national company called British Rail. And um, it was literally a joke. I mean, people would make jokes about it. Comedians would do sketches about how terrible British Rail was. There were jokes about British Rail sandwiches being appalling. Um, you know, it was literally a, a laughing stock. Um, and the the privatisation of the railways um, was done in a kind of... They sort of tried to replicate what had been done in energy. So the analogue of the energy networks... Um, is the rail infrastructure itself, the tracks and so on. Um, and that was separated out from the train operating companies, which are the which are the analog of the suppliers. Um, and it hasn't been so successful in the railways. And so there's all this always this talk about renationalizing the railways. But when it was nationalized previously, it was absolutely terrible. And, and <laughs> forget that, you know, this is not some sort of a utopia that we should be harking back to. Well, this brings me to an interesting point. I've, I've been thinking about this the discussions in Europe, particularly how Germany is sort of nationalizing some of their energy utilities, France has kind of renationalized or taken more uh, of a percentage of EDF and, um, and, and some of the other countries as well. Of nostalgia, uh, a return to the 1950s or 60s style of energy pricing, where you, there was long term contracts at a set stable price to ensure stability and consistency of planning. I look at these long-term contracts that um, Germany has signed with Qatar and, and I'm thinking, are they trying to go back to that? Is there, it, it comes to this sort of nostalgia. Oh, in the fifties and sixties, there was the seven sisters who prices and wow, wasn't that great? We got to plan stuff. And, and I wonder if they're sort of moving in that direction, you know, nationalizing to some extent, but then hoping to negotiate these longer term contracts at a sort of set price. 
Um, so there's a couple of things to unpack with that. Um, I think a lot of the nationalizations that have happened in the last few years have been by necessity rather than ideology. Um, so take EDF as an example, it was pretty much bankrupt because the government was forcing it to sell electricity below cost. And um, that isn't something that you can do indefinitely. And so in the end, it, um, the government was really forced to buy up the, the remaining portion of EDF it didn't already own and take it back into state ownership. And then you can use tax, tax money to subsidize um, selling energy below cost. Um, and similarly in Germany, where they've done some renationalizations, it was because the companies were in bankruptcy that they effectively had to get bailed out by the state. So it's right. a little bit different from renationalizing from uh, for the purpose of renationalizing if, if if you have that as an ideological position. When it comes to these long-term contracts, um, again, it's not quite so simple. Long-term contracts in themselves are a good thing. Um, and people should have them in their portfolio. It doesn't mean that everything has to be on the long-term contracts, but you should have a portion of your procurement should be on long-term contracts. And some of that should be on fixed prices with um, with firm delivery as well. Um, so, you know, if you look in the detail of these contracts, it's important to consider, do you have, you know, who has diversion rights in these LNG contracts? The Germans were being offered um, fit, firm long-term contracts by Norway, uh, pipeline gas, and they turned it down in favor of LNG because they had a view that in a few years time, there might be long gas and they might want to reship it, um, which is why they're looking at these LNG deals because that would give them that flexibility. I personally mm -hmm. think that's fanciful. I can't see any scenario under which in 10 years, Germany's gonna be long gas, but this I think is underpinning its preference for long-term LNG contracts. Um, but I don't see, see that we're moving back to the type of long-term contracts that we had in Europe historically, where you know the early deals with Gazprom were 20, 30-year deals on oil indexation, and those deals became very underwater in the early 2000s, and um, because you had a situation where um, gas hub pricing was starting to emerge. So utilities were buying on an oil indexed price that had gone really quite significantly higher than the hub gas prices. And there's not really a good basis at the moment now to price gas off um, oil. Oil is really not used in electricity generation anymore. So the whole sort of substitute fuel argument has, has long since gone away. And we do have liquid gas markets. So um, unfortunately, they're not liquid very far in the future. They don't trade out anywhere as near as oil does. But if you're basing your long-term contracts off oil prices, you're going to you're going to be embedding a massive basis risk in your in your um, in your portfolio, which is not a good thing. Um, and that caused significant financial difficulty for a lot of European utilities in sort of 20, 2006, 2007, that sort of um, time up to 2010. So, and a lot of those contracts ended up in arbitration as well. And Gazprom was forced to increase the amount of spot pricing it had in those contracts. Um, so it's 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 a balancing act that um, the buyers have to do. You need some long-term fixed price contracts with firm delivery. Um, you need shorter term contracts. You need flexibility as well in your portfolio. And you need to sort of construct a, a balanced approach that will give you risk management and energy security. Do you, do you think that sort of balance is what is behind or informing the UK market? 
Um, in what sense? In the sense that, you know, when they when, now that there's these these price caps and whatnot, it, are they still able to be negotiating those those types of pricing? Um, yes, they are. And so these price caps are relatively short term in nature. You've got one going until April and one going until um, the following April. But this is where the government is going to make up the cost to the suppliers. Um, so everyone is still pretty much doing their procurement in the norm normal way. They're just going to be reimbursed by the government okay. um, where it fails to cover the, where what they receive from the customers fails to, to cover the costs. So I don't really okay. see that it's changing the behavior in that in that way. Do you think this is a good system or do you believe there's an alternative that could be better? Um, well, it's, it's sort of interesting because it, we people talk about, oh, the UK is going to, has entered into an agreement to buy gas from Qatar or whatever. Um, and that's really not true. Um, the UK doesn't enter into these deals. The, you know, this isn't a government level thing. Is companies in the UK enter into contracts with companies in other parts of the world, some of which might be owned by governments and some not. For example, if we, if we, you know, if Centrica enters into a, a, a deal to buy gas uh, LNG from the US, then that's not the British government entering into a deal with the US government. It's a company in the UK entering into a deal with a company in the US. And um, and I don't see there's anything wrong with that, except that it's quite fragmented. So nobody really has very much market power. The EU is saying, well, maybe if we had collective buying, we could uh, secure better deals within the EU and maybe buy gas in the EU at a better price. Uh, but then you get into all sorts of issues around, well, how do you allocate that gas then amongst the member states? Um, are sellers going to be willing to engage with that? Um, are you sort of encouraging a buyer's cartel in the same way that you might say OPEC is a seller's cartel? Um, you know, so there's all sorts of complications around that. Um, the, you, the international gas markets are extremely competitive at the moment. If you're trying to buy gas, there are lots of um, buyers and not as many sellers. The sellers have the market power. Um, and so it's not immediately obvious to me that collective buying is going to um, achieve anything very different from what's available at the moment. So do you think that's more of a political statement to try to um, appease the critics or it seems to me that this is something of political posturing talking about, well, we can we can have these types of agreements and whatnot. But like you say, in the end, it's companies that that, that make these deals. Well, I think in the EU case, that's true. There's been an awful lot of discussion in the EU around different sorts of measures that should be put in place um, because they have this very high dependency on Russian gas. And there's a real concern about where will Europe's gas come from for next winter. Um, they did a pretty good job of filling their um, gas storage facilities this year, but that was primarily done using Nord Stream and now Nord Stream will not be available next year. So the question is, where will the gas come from to fill up European storage for next winter. Right. Some of the measures that um, that are being discussed around the demand reduction side are obviously extremely helpful for that because that conserves the gas that they have. Um, but things like discussions around a price cap could actually have the exact opposite effect. Um, in Iberia, where they put in a price cap on the 
price of gas for electricity generation back in May, they saw gas consumption increase as a result and also exports into France went up. Um, they went up also because of the French nuclear situation, but in any case, um, that wasn't, it's not good from a, a volume preservation perspective. So I think there is a danger that people want to be seen to be taking action rather than necessarily doing something that's useful. Right, um, which brings me, this is a, a really interesting point that you make about demand reduction, because I know in Europe, and I'm not sure how far they're doing this in the UK, but they talk about industrial managed curtailment in the short term, where industries will sort of ramp down their production, or I know there's a couple of foundries in, in Germany that have had to shut their furnaces and so on temporarily, but I always worry that how many industries that shut their doors now uh, will do so for good because, yeah. the, you know, to, to restart it, there's no guarantee what the prices are going to be. It might just be cheaper in the medium term to shift that production to jurisdictions that have reliable, affordable energy like China, for example. I know that the, the UK mini plant, they uh, uh, mini announced that they're going to be shutting it and, and, moving it to China to make all their mini EVs. So, you know, when, when he, they talk about this demand reduction, I, I'm concerned that that becomes permanent, especially with respect to industry. Well, I think that's a really big concern in Germany. If you look at um, the natural conclusion of Germany's um, energy policy, it's deindustrialization. Yeah. You cannot run heavy industry on intermittent renewables. You cannot get high temperature heat from intermittent renewables. These things are just not possible. Um, and they're anti-nuclear at the same time. So the real question to be asking the Green Party in Germany is, is it your policy? Is it your desire to deindustrialize the country? And if it is, then please be honest about it, because that is where your policies lead. Um, and, you know, you, you, just talk openly about it then if that's what you want then do it you know plan it and and communicate about it and have it done properly rather than something that you slide into by default um, right. course, I don't yeah. think many people in Germany would be very keen on the idea um it, you know and, and they have issues with some of these plants you know for example if you have um, a big uh, gas uh, glass furnace for example um, if you shut that down and the glass cools inside the furnace, you can't get it back. Then, you you, you know, you've pretty much ruined your facility. Yeah. So you've got to be really careful about these things. And so, yes, people are looking and saying, if we're going to have to do these shutdowns, then maybe we do just take the opportunity to move somewhere else. In Britain, it's a little bit of a different situation. Um, there are various schemes already in place where National Grid can ask um industrial consumers to uh, turn down their consumption or to turn it up. In fact, um, at other times you need increased consumption for system, uh, system uh, stability reasons. Um, and they also get paid to do that. A new scheme has been introduced this winter, which extends to households um, and it's, it's um, executed at the day ahead. So it's not massively flexible, um, but National Grid thinks that it could potentially need at two gigawatts of this demand response service. But contacts with mine within um, heavy industry have been telling me since really March this year that they're worried that this winter they might see um, involuntary curtailment. And that's wow. where you get the big concern 
which is where National Grid will just tell heavy industry that they have to stop consuming at certain times to protect the domestic market. And then you have a genuine loss of economic output. And that's it. That's something that you don't capture within the energy system. So when National Grid is, is looking at demand reduction as a way of as a tool for managing um, managing the energy system, it's not factoring in the wider economic cost of that. And we had a trial this week of this demand flexibility service for the domestic market. Um, and I participated in a, in a radio show and they had some, uh, some consumers who'd taken part. This was just a trial run that they did this week. And they said, um, so one, one family, they, they sat in bed for an hour uh, reading a book um, with the lights off and the heating off. Um, another family, they sat in their car eating a takeaway and reading stuff on their mobile phones. I mean, these are pretty extreme actions. Um, wow. To you know, to be doing now. I'm not sure that when National Grid designed the scheme, it had in, in mind that consumers would go to those lengths because uh, they're getting paid. You know, if they would, but the more they cut their consumption at the time that they're asked to cut, the more they'll earn. But it's all relative to what they use normally. So unless they're using huge amount normally, even if you sit in the dark for an hour in the cold, you're not really going to earn that much money. Um, and it's going to be pretty unpleasant and for some people dangerous. Um, yeah. So I, I'm wondering whether our regulator is going to need to have a look at this, because one of the things the regulator is concerned about more widely is, particularly in the context of, of rising prices, are vulnerable consumers um, self-harming in a way self-disconnecting in a way that's detrimental um because of the the sort of hardship aspect um and you know if you're going to have schemes like this that provide an incentive to do that um then that could be very bad for certain groups of vulnerable consumers so um you know we might have to see regulatory action around that that's that's a very good point particularly the elderly have a, a strong sense of duty and are they going to see this as a as part of their duty to help stabilize the nation and in in so doing put themselves in gr great danger um yes that's true and, and and the people that were um that were on this radio show they they had young children now i wasn't sure just how young the children were and my sense was they were maybe sort of primary school age um but again you know this is this is really not a good way um to be running things it's not desirable it's not healthy um and so i really think that we need to be planning much better to resource our energy system appropriately do you see this as a temporary measure or could this become a permanent thing for the uk i think people are thinking of it at the moment as temporary aware of the gas crisis as a result of the ukraine war um, but what people, I think, are not realising is that underneath the gas crisis, we have an electricity crisis. And the electricity crisis is, has been caused by poor policy decisions. It's not unique to the UK, nor is it a gas crisis either, for that matter. But um, many countries have made the same policy mistakes that we have, and that it's getting worse. And that this year has, um, in some ways, accelerated the problem because of the situation in France with their nuclear fleet. But, you know, this is actually the second time in five years that the French have taken large parts of the fleet offline because of systemic problems. 
Right. It's an aging fleet. Who's to say there's not going to be the same problem in another couple of years? They find some other issue that that means they have to take all the reactors offline. Um, it, it's, you know, that's a risk. So you have um, a lot of countries in Europe following a strongly wind-led energy transition without having their own backup facilities for when it's not windy. Um, by law in the UK, all our coal plants has to close by October 2024. We have two nuclear reactors scheduled to close in March 2024, just because of old age. Um, so this time in two years, we'll have something like four gigawatts less um, electricity than we have now. And our spare winter capacity margin is just under four gigawatts. So it, it, this is only going to get worse year on year, each year as we go through this decade, um, we're going to find it harder and harder to meet demand in the winter when it's not windy. Right. Um, thank you so much. I, I know you're pressed for time and you've take, taken a good 40 minutes to chat with me about this. Thank you so much for your clarity and just trying to explain what this, what's going on in the UK and in Europe to some extent for um, my listeners in North America who may not know or understand a lot of what's what's happening over in the UK. So thank you very much, Catherine Porter, for uh, chatting with me today ab about these things. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I will put links in the description to your website and some of your writings that um, that I've seen in other places. And hopefully my listeners will will read up on on, on what you've been talking about. Yeah, great. Um, it, it, that would be good. I, I have um, I've been working actually earlier this year with some uh, clients in Canada, and um, yeah, so I'm always happy to engage. Thank you so much. All right then. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.